this is Paul Cantabini uh, announcing Pro Lacrosse Talk. Right off the bat, there's Lyle Thompson. Kylie Omel are showing off those shifty skills. Driver driving hard down the alley, and he scores. What a goal from Josh Bird. Kayla Trainer slips and scores. What You're kidding me. By Dylan Ward. Gets topside. Rambo scores. Welcome to Pro Lacrosse Talk, your go-to podcast for interviews with professional players, coaches, and executives, as well as the latest news and analysis from all three professional lacrosse leagues. Now, here's your host, Hutton Jackson. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, Pro Lacrosse fans? Welcome to another edition of Pro Lacrosse Talk presented by Fanatics. Reminder to visit prolacrossetalk.com slash nllshop or prolacrossetalk.com slash nllshop-ca for your official NLL team gear. I'm your host, Hunt Jackson, here joined by PLT contributor Brian Andrews. And today we have a Hall of Fame edition, including an interview with a Hall of Famer and former member of the Philadelphia Barrage and Wings. Brian, I know you're a big Barrage fan, former Barrage fan, as well as a Wings fan. Um, but how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Lots of lacrosse to talk about. I'm really excited to get into it. Yeah, you, you're doing double duty this week. You are on the Bet on Lacrosse podcast, and you're on the Pro Lacrosse Talk as well. But yeah, I mentioned the Pro Lacrosse Hall of Fame that the Premier Lacrosse put together. 11 inductees in this inaugural class. Um, not too many surprises, really. You know, uh, maybe a few that we didn't expect, but they, I think they did a really good job of paying homage to the legends of the game that came, you know, prior, especially in the early days of the MLL. Um, but at attack, you had Casey Powell. John Grant Jr., who we weren't sure if John Grant Jr. was going to be eligible because, uh, you know, the three-year minimum retirement, but they actually said it was uh, cumulative since he was retired for two years, came back, and then was retired for another year. So you have Casey Powell, John Grant Jr., Mark Millen, Gary Gate, Matt Striebel, Jay Jalbert, John Gagliardi, Pat McCabe, Nikki Polanco, Brian Doherty, and Paul Cantabini, who is actually our interview today as well. So you'll hear from him directly. But those are your inductees in the inaugural Professional Lacrosse Hall of Fame. Brian, we're not going to go too in-depth into all of these, but I know there's a few that we were pretty certain we're going to be in the Hall of Fame. You know, I mentioned Casey Powell. I think he was a lock to get in. Gary Gate was a lock to get in. John Grant Jr., knowing, you know, he was eligible, he was a lock to get in. Um, but I, I think in particular, the crazy thing about Gate and Casey is that, you know, Casey had a lengthy career in the MLL. Gary Gate did not necessarily, but both these guys won MVP awards at 38 years old. Casey winning his MVP um, in 2014 with the launch. Um, just absurd, the talent level of these guys. You know, I, I think some people would say they could still probably strap up today um, and drop a few Gs in the professional leagues. They're that good. 
Um, but no surprises really there. And the same with John Grant Jr., you know, sitting right now, top leader in goals in professional field across history, as well as right behind Paul Rabel and most points in professional field across history as well. And uh, he's up there pretty high too in the NLL as well. Him and Casey Powell both got inducted in the NLL Hall of Fame this past summer as well. But uh, thoughts on these guys, you know, some of these guys are barrage guys. Uh, any in particular that stood out to you that you want to, you know, just talk about their legacy? Uh, I love the barrage love. I grew up watching those guys. They were very prominent in uh, the Philly lacrosse scene. I went to plenty of camps where they were out giving us instructions and it was fun to watch them win so many championships. They were one of the early lacrosse dynasties. Uh, so seeing guys like Strebel and Doc on their, you know, obvious picks, um, whether or not you wanted them in on the first class, I don't think it really matters that much. Uh, particularly Doc, I saw people uh, upset about, you know, maybe Catrano deserving because he was earlier or something. He's going to get in. It doesn't matter. I'm happy that Doc's getting the recognition he deserves. No, absolutely. And I, I agree with you too. Like I, I, I tend to have thought that Catrano was going to be the first goalie inducted, but at the end of the day, we're talking about hall of famers getting in first. Like, you know, they're both hall of famers. Like who's going to get in first. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Um, you know, who gets in first. And obviously doc had a phenomenal career winning those two championships with the barrage, um, you know, a thousand over a thousand saves um you know in, during his career so yeah i i mean it, you know i think catrano is a lock for next year i thought he was a lock for this year um so he's one of the guys we'll talk a little bit about later you know who could be in next year's class but um well deserved by a lot of these guys and strebel too you know a prolific career um he played pro soccer for a couple seasons while playing pro lacrosse as well which is kind of crazy to think about um, right now, he sits fourth in most career games with 171, um, fourth behind Brody Merrill, Kyle Sweeney, and Brian Spilina, um, all Hall of Famers in their own right as well. You know, Brody Merrill has to wait a few years once he retires, um, but, you know, we both think Sweeney and Spilina might get in next year. Um, but talk a little bit about another guy that used to play a lot with Spilina and Polanco. You know, what are your thoughts on uh, Nicky Polanco getting the nod this year? Uh, just a great pick and he was so influential for so many of our playing styles at the time mm-hmm. uh, especially because he was very prominent as I was getting into high school so a lot of coaches and you know club coaches would tell you to go watch film of that guy so absolutely well deserved and happy to see him get in yeah no and you know prolific career with multiple teams um, another guy too, like you mentioned watching Polanco and learn from him, Mark Millen was a guy I, I watched, you know, his offensive wizardry videos. Um, I, I think you'd be hard to press to find an offensive player that didn't watch those, you know, around my time. Um, and he really did what Rabel, I think re- did for lacrosse, you know, with his YouTube presence, um, before there was YouTube, you know, Mark Millen and, you know, credit to JJ Albert, who was behind the camera for a lot of this stuff, um, that a lot of these, you know, productions and these videos that were produced, those two really, helped bring education to the masses. And it wasn't just, you know, if you went to a Millen lacrosse camp, that was great. But, you know, if you were someone like me that maybe didn't have the chance to go to one of those camps, you could watch the videos and learn from these greats um, early on, you know, in the age of the VHS um, and DVDs. So, you know, dating myself a little bit, but it was really, they were really influential beyond just playing on the field. But another guy that's well-deserved, Paul Cantabini, who you'll get to hear from a little bit later, um, really paving the way for that face-off position. But at the end of the day, yeah, there's a few guys that, you know, maybe we thought might get in and they didn't yet. And they're still Hall of Famers in their own right. And we'll just have to wait a little bit, um, you know, to see them get in next year. But going off of that, you know, Greg Cortano has won five straight MLL championship appearances. One, two of those was the first goalie to win MVP. 
and the only one until Blaze Reardon did it last year. So he's a guy that I think should get in um, next year for sure. And then Ryan Bull is a guy that I think could have been on the bubble as well. He still leads the in, in most career assists with 292 um, and only played 11 seasons. The guys, you know, right underneath of him were Walters, Casey Powell, Paul Rabel, John Grant Jr., Rob Pinnell. Um, all those guys, with the exception of Rob Pinnell, played more seasons than Ryan Boyle, and Ryan Boyle still has more assists than them. So he's a guy that I think is a shoo-in for next year. Any guys that are on your radar to get into the Hall of Fame next year? I mean, I feel like, you know, Ryan Powell has to be, you know, up there in consideration. And then uh, you mentioned Spolina and Sweeney, also barrage guys. So clearly mm-hmm. I just want the entire dynasty checked off the list. But um, they, they were also both very su- super influential in the way uh, that I learned the game and that I played. So I, th- I think that they deserve a next nod. Yeah, absolutely. Spolina with the most championships of any pro field lacrosse player. And then you got Kyle Sweeney sitting eighth in ground balls. Um, unfortunately, the league didn't really track cause turnovers too well early in the early years. So we don't really have that uh, legacy data, unfortunately. But um, credit to the PLL stats team, Jake Watts, uh, for putting all this together too on the PLL website. So you guys can actually check out the career leaders and kind of see who moves up the rankings. A guy who hasn't retired yet, but I'm keeping my eye on is Joe Walters, you know, currently sitting at three in points. I don't think he'll catch John Grant Jr. and Paul Rabel, um, but he's high up there on the list as well as, you know, like I said, second in assists. Um, he's a guy that I think is going to get in once he's eligible, you know, first ballot. So um, luck- hopefully we get a little bit more of him than we did last year, but it's another guy that's kind of under the radar for how good he's been for so long. Granted, he's played 16 seasons, so he's played a, a long time, but uh, another guy definitely to, to watch out and, uh, we recently had a retirement of Drew Snyder, you know, who was four-time champion, uh, three times with the Outlaws, once with the Whip Snakes. He retired with 199 career goals, which is 22nd all-time, um, including that game-winning goal in the 2014 MLL Championship. Um, and really, if you look three years ahead, it's probably going to be him, Paul Rabel, and Kyle Harrison as the midfielders getting into that class. Granted, you know, they might change the rules up, and it might not just be three per position, uh, you know, with the midfield, but those are three guys that I think are going to be first ballot hall of famers as well. But as I mentioned, we did have an interview with the hall of famer and Paul Cantabini, uh, the head coach of Stevenson as well. Um, so let's toss our interview with him. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price. Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Today on Pro Lacrosse Talk, I'm lucky to be joined by Paul Cantabini, former pro lacrosse player, head coach at Stevenson University, and member of the inaugural class of the Professional Lacrosse Hall of Fame. Paul, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to it. Appreciate it. Of course. Let's start with that induction into the Professional Lacrosse Hall of Fame. You're a part of this inaugural class. Describe the feeling of having your major league lacrosse accomplishments recognized by the PLL. Well, you know, you know, first of all, this is like to really like to thank the PLL and the, the Hall of Fame committee. Uh, it's just really a, a tremendous honor to... Uh, be inducted with those other uh, 10 guys, you know, they're, they're, those are the legends of the game and, and to be, uh, to be able to be included with them over 20 years of outdoor lacrosse in that, that first class, it really is uh, something special, not only for me, but for my family and my kids, you know, to see that. And um, so just very honored to do it. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to play with some of those guys to help me look better than I probably was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, 
but it, it was great. I was just very lucky to play with some of the guys that I played with um, over my career. And uh, just to have the support we did from the Bayhawks uh, and, um, and uh, uh, during that time and uh, be able to, to finish out the barrage was awesome to end of my career in the out in the outdoor league. So um, just very, uh, very fortunate and I can't wait for the induction. Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. No, absolutely. And we're going to get into more of your pro career, but prior to playing pro, you played four years at Loyola. Talk about when you first started playing lacrosse and then what eventually led you to Loyola. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, my, my brother, Chris, I, the way I started playing lacrosse is that, you know, I was really like football and basketball and all that good stuff. And I didn't really play lacrosse until my brother, Chris, who went to Syracuse, uh, brought me home a lacrosse stick. It was a red magnum with a red head and a silver mm-hmm. shaft and uh, brown leathers. So it was awesome. And that's when leather, you know, leather sticks were the, the thing. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of how it took off. And then, you know, when uh, my dad passed, uh, we moved from Fairport, New York to Arondecourt, New York. And a lot of the friends I had at that time uh, were playing lacrosse. And so in middle school, I mm-hmm. played for the North team. And uh, a couple of my buddies uh, played for that and Andy Greaves and Kyle McClements and Rick Harima and uh, a lot of those guys played. So I, I played, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> and uh, so I just kind of was fast and just kind of ran around and we had a lot of fun. And it's kind of funny how it led to facing off a little bit because we had, uh, we were playing the North team and they had this really big guy uh, facing off for them and uh, nobody wanted to go against him. <laughs> Excuse me. And so I was like, I'll go against him. And uh, just went out there and uh, won a few face-offs and then uh, it went from there. But I didn't even play lacrosse until I was in eighth grade. And so that really shows you like nowadays kids are playing. By the time they get to eighth grade, they got like 10 years under their belt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's when I first started. And, uh, but uh, that's kind of how we led. And then uh, from that, I was lucky enough to uh, be on the JV team my um, freshman year. And then I got called up at the end of the year, which was really cool because then I was playing in a playoff game versus Canadegua. And Canadegua at that time had – um, these great players and Jock Monty was on that or Fairport, I'm sorry, Jock Monty was on that team mm-hmm. and uh, Tim Sudan and we're playing them in the uh, semifinals, I guess the section five. And I was a freshman. I got called up. I didn't know what was going on. And uh, so all of a sudden they were like, Canabine, get in. And I'm like, I'm on the bench looking there with my other freshmen. And so there I am, you know, playing in the section five semifinal game as a freshman year. And I'm going up against all American Jock Monty somehow uh who's going uh, who's an unbelievable face-off guy i think he i believe he went to hobart and uh, i got beat as quick as you can say you blow the whistle he beat me and went down i think they scored a goal <laughs> but i got lucky enough that he took a chance on me to go back out there and then i ended up winning five and nine that night uh and i scored a goal off a of face-off ran down and i think we lost uh nine seven or ten eight in that game but uh it was a great experience for me to get into that and then after that I was lucky enough to be on varsity the next year and made all county. And then the following year I got better, made all county. And then I went to a camp that summer called the first year they had, it was top 205. Mm-hmm. And uh, six guys from my school were lucky enough to be selected to go for it. So that's the only year top 205, the recruiting camp was 205 kids. After that, it was like 628, you know, everybody <laughs> went to it. And uh, so we're lucky enough to um, go to that. And uh, I played very well. You know, I was lucky enough. They had a draft then and I was lucky enough to be the first draft pick. In that, Billy the Bajoranis, who has passed, um, a great guy, um, drafted me, and I was on his team, and we won the championship and everything, and I got seen by Loyola there, and um, and lucky enough it all took from there. But my mom, the funniest part was is that, you know, my mom was just a uh, poor sentimentalist. Uh, my brother, when my, bro- when my dad died, you know, I had six brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. uh, uh, seven all together, and, uh, you know, he died. The family kind of broke up during that point, um, 81, 82, and they all went on their way. Uh, to do that. So my mom, you know, it was just me and my younger brother, Rob there, and she was a system analyst. And so she didn't have a lot of money to send me to these schools at that time. And so she gave me a great deal. She goes, Paul, 
you can go to any school in the country you want. And I was like, mom, that's awesome. I, I really appreciate that. But you got to get a full scholarship. And so mm-hmm. I was a very motivated because he didn't have any money to send me to college where I was going to Monroe Community College. And so mm-hmm. I was a very motivated guy that summer. And I was able to go to that camp and play really well. And I uh, was able to uh, get myself a, one of, the, I think, one of the last full rides to go to Loyola College. And I think that was the best decision I ever made, really. You know, I wanted to go to Syracuse really bad. Um, they wanted me to go. I, went, I, took my, I took several recruiting trips to Syracuse. I wanted to go there uh, as well. But, you know, I just thought at that time, a big school like Syracuse with 25,000 people um, at that time wasn't a great fit for me. And I needed a smaller school that looked after me. Loyola was a small Jesuit school that had small classes and really did a great job with kids. And to go there and Coach Cottle to take the chance on me really worked out and uh, worked out well for me. And I was lucky enough to get an offer to go there. So I'm really happy about the decision to go there. And Loyola was a great school and uh, very happy that. But, you know, college at that time was only 16-5, you know, mm-hmm. and to go there. Now Loyola is like 67. So <laughs> it's a little different, but it was great. Yeah, and talk about your time with the Greyhounds uh, and your career there. You, obviously, you guys made some NCAA appearances. Um, so talk about your time with the Greyhounds. Yeah, started. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to start in the, on the first midfield line um, uh, my freshman year. And you know, what a lot of people don't know about me is that, you know, they just kind of, especially nowadays, people think I was just a face-off guy. And, uh, but no, I, I played in the field and I ran in the first mm-hmm. midfield line. It was me to start out and a guy named Gene Ubriaco. And uh, Brian Kronberger was our first midfield line until, unfortunately, Gene blew out his knee in a scrimmage against Maryland. Uh, and then so then Teddy Nichols was uh, the first line we ran all year with them and had a great freshman year and uh, had some big games. I think my best game was against Virginia that year where I had three goals as a freshman. And then, uh, you know, I had a good career. I didn't face off a lot at Loyola into that until about my senior year. We had some other guys that were pretty good. And, you know, mm-hmm. and so I, um, I, my senior year, I was able to I ran the whole first midfield line all year. Me, Kevin Anderson and Dan Burnham were the first midfield line. And I faced off all year and I uh, did that. And I was lucky enough to make a uh, second team All-American. But, you know, my freshman year, we went to the national championship game. We mm-hmm. lost to Syracuse 18-9. So uh, that was a pretty good team. That 90 Syracuse team was pretty good. And they got it, but we made the playoffs each and every other year. And then my senior year, we lost in the quarterfinals to Princeton, who I think ended up winning the national championship. Uh, but uh, it was a great experience. And I think Loyola did a lot to uh, really develop me and who I am today and all the things they did off the field to help me really helped. Because, you know, it was tough for my mom being a single mom, <clears throat> you know, raising me and my brother and trying to do all that at the same time. And so uh, they really did a great job. You know, and your first professional foray wasn't actually in the field game. It was in the indoor game, which was very different back then uh, with major indoor league lacrosse, which eventually became the NLL. You had 11 seasons in that league. Talk about your first foray into professional lacrosse in a style of lacrosse that was different than what you had played prior. Well, you know, playing in the MLL, NLL was just so much different than the field game. And I really mm-hmm. enjoyed the playing the NLL because it was just I thought the field game and the NLL were just two different games. Mm-hmm. all together and, it, and the NLL really kind of played into my physicality and what I wanted to do and I was able to play uh, two hands which is an, another thing people really don't know is that in the NLL a lot I played left-handed I was a right-handed player but I played left-handed and uh, and be able to play me more and uh, mm-hmm. so I was lucky to get on that team I think uh, Judge Russell drafted me in the second round to be uh, on that team and it was great and my first year I had a lot of success you know I was the MVP of the team and was able to go out there and do a lot of really good things and it was really interesting to play because the NLL back then was really very physical. The rules were much mm. different. It was a really a physical game. You were, you pretty much had to assault somebody to get a penalty. <laughs> so, you know, but you got to play in a lot of great buildings and gets a lot of great players. You know, I remember playing against John Traveris and Beltman and all those guys during that time. So playing for Baltimore and doing all that was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed that. And my time in the NL was awesome. I really enjoyed every year of it and had a lot of fun. 
Yeah. And what do you think of, you know, more Americans now playing in the NLL and uh, particularly a lot of the face-off specialists in the field game now going over and kind of developing their skills more as a complete lacrosse player in the box game. I mean, I think playing box only helps you playing in those small conditions, uh, the small areas uh, the physicality of it, being able to handle the physicality of it, being able to score tough goals, uh, the different mindset, how creative you have to be in order to score. You just can't shoot it a million miles an hour and hope it goes in. Mm-hmm. You know, the goalies are really good. And so and you have to be able to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You got to understand concepts. You got to understand how to play off the ball. You can't even, a lot of the ball dominant guys in college go to the NLL and struggle a little bit because they're so used to having the ball. And that's mm-hmm. not what it's about. It's about moving the ball, getting to open spots and doing that. And uh, so I think it only enhances the, field, the, the, the uh, abilities of the field guys to go and play box. And I really enjoyed my 11 years playing with all the teams I did uh in the nll and all the success we had uh doing that and uh and i think some of the best fans are in the nll man if you look mm-hmm. at philly i remember you know going to philly getting you know i was able to play against philly and hear them tell me how much i sucked you know every introduction it was awesome you know to tell that but then i was also able to end my career in philly and you know i had a you know to get the other way and how much they really appreciate great play i scored five goals against colorado one year uh, mm-hmm. one of my last games there and you know be able to you know run around the field and have them give you a standing o is unbelievable so you know the fans in the nll i think are incredible and mm-hmm. how they support their teams and everything. So that's really one of the best parts of the league uh, to do that. And plus playing in all the buildings I was able to play. You know, I got to play in the old odd, got to play mm-hmm. in Maple Leaf Garden, got to play in Joe Lewis Stadium, Joe Lewis uh, out in Detroit, all those great, got to, you know, out in Nassau Coliseum, got to play in the Boston Garden. It was awesome. You know, those things are, you know, a lot of field guys don't get to do that, you know, to play in those awesome places. So I thought that was really a, another great part to do that, uh, to be able to do all those and play in those buildings and all that stuff was awesome. No, absolutely. And then now Major League Lacrosse began with a showcase eventually and then a 2001 season. Um, you played for the Bayhawks. You won two championships with them. Then you ended your career on top with the Philadelphia Barrage winning another title. Talk about being a part of the early MLL days and, you know, the first kind of foray of professional field lacrosse. Uh, it was great. You know, I mean, it was just good that, man, before that, you know, we played in the USILA, mm-hmm. you know, it was this club lacrosse and all those guys. And, you know, that was, uh, and that was great. You know, that was pretty much the MLL before it started, you know, they had all those teams, MAB paints and capital and um, the green turtle Mount Washington lacrosse club, who I played for uh, the long Island lacrosse club. And, you know, those teams were all just like the MLL teams, but now we were getting paid to play. And mm-hmm. so, which makes it really good. And, but they, they, it was a little rough at early. I think they were just trying to get by. But, you know, the play in the field was outstanding. You got to remember, it was only six teams at that time. Mm-hmm. And you only dressed 17 guys. And so the, the battle just to play and practice was insane. And uh, so to get the guys on the field. But, you know, those experiences are great. You know, some of them are a little questionable when you're playing in baseball fields and parks and all that stuff. But they were try- just trying to get off the ground mm-hmm. uh, to do that. Uh, but, you know, that our Bayhawk team, those early Bayhawk teams we played with were incredible. You know, just the talent from uh, from the D to the offensive end was uh, was great. And, you know, playing Long Island in that first championship game was awesome. Even though we lost it, it was a great game. Uh, you know, but those teams were really outstanding, even compared to today. You know, the PLL has great teams. I mean, if you look at those teams and look at the honors from the top to bottom of those teams, the guys that were playing, it was, it was truly remarkable. And a lot of those guys, which people don't realize, they weren't in their 20s. You know, a lot <laughs> of those guys weren't 23, 24, 25 years old. You know, my first year in the MLL, um, I was 30, you know, when mm-hmm. I did that, you know, so, you know, and I, I retired when I was 36. So a lot of those guys, like the Gates and all those guys that played in there, they were in their thirties in, in late thirties when they retired. So they were playing at a very high level for a very long time, which is a little bit different. Now, when you look at the PL, all those guys are, a lot of those guys are in their twenties and, and, you know, Paul retiring this past year, he was 35, I think. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, they're, you know, 
it was just a lot different when you know, we were picking up that league as old men, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, then adding in all the new guys as they came each year. So it was great. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think Tony Rush was the one that recounted the story of you signing your cleats and leaving them at the midfield uh, to mark your retirement. Talk about that final MLL championship and decision to call it a career after that game. Well, there's a lot more that went into that, really. So that all plays back into the um, 2005 uh, national team tryouts for 2006 USA team. Mm -hmm. uh, USA team. And um, uh, I was very disappointed not to make the team in 2006. You know, I thought I had a great tryout. And, um, and I was, it seemed like I was on the team and, and my play in that tryout was actually a lot of things that happened in that tryout that kind of affected the tryout because even in the bubble game, which they had back then, uh, they had me switch teams at halftime. So I was playing so well at times I thought, you know, I was winning all the faceoffs in the first half of the one team. Then they go, Paul, you got to go play for the other team. We had the ball too much. All right. So they had to go play for the other team. And a lot of guys were upset about that because that affected the, how much they had the ball. I mean, it showed what they could do in that bubble game. And then I didn't get, it wasn't made, uh, it wasn't selected for the team, which I was pretty upset about. So I kind of retired really. It's like, I'm done with this and, and did that. And then um, the Bay, uh, the barrage called me and they're like, Hey, do you want to play? You know, mm -hmm. and I'm sitting on my couch drinking a beer, like retired. And I'm like, well, sure. And then, so I went back and played and I think the, they had a game in a park. Uh, we were playing in New Jersey for something, and uh, that was my first game back, so I haven't, I haven't played for a while. But then also got a phone call from Coach Seaman and uh, Matt Kerwick saying, hey, the Team USA might want you to come back because, uh, you know, um, Casey might have a baby, and Jabel, I think Jay Jabel was hurt, and, and this mm -hmm. kid Schneider on that team is looking pretty good, and they might reconsider the direction they went into, and they need a face-off guy. So I joined Team USA then as an alternate, uh, went to Ontario and played and all that kind of stuff. And at the end, I wasn't selected for the game. And uh, for the team again, and they went with that team and they lost in the championship game to Team Canada with Jeff Schneider pretty much dominating them uh, mm -hmm. with that. So that's kind of a, a bitter pill to swallow standing on the sidelines watching Jeff win all those faceoffs when you think uh, you should be out there. But, mm -hmm. but I did the good thing for Team USA because uh, I wanted to support my country and go out there and do that. I thought that was really important to do. And uh, I did that. So then when we came back to the season again, uh, I was a pretty motivated guy. And mm -hmm. then knowing that and playing into the playoffs, I was playing some of my best, uh, I was facing off some of the best of my career um, at that time. And then I was lucky enough, uh, we got to the championship game with the Barrage and we were lucky enough to face uh, Los Angeles who had Cersei and Jeff Schneider on the team. So mm -hmm. I was really eager for that game and very motivated to play well. And I had a great day and be able to, to beat Jeff, uh, you know, 11 out of 15 times that day and beat Chris Cersei you know, 20 out of 22 times that day uh, and score a goal and help lead our team to a 10 goal win was awesome. And then, so, but then you at 36 years old and that game was over that uh, my days were kind of limited. So, you know, at, the, at that time, I just, you know, took my cleats off and placed them at the X, a place that treated me so well for, you know, 13 years of my life playing pro lacrosse. And, and so I just thought that was appropriate to do that and, and leave them, leave my cleats where it all started and mm -hmm. uh, kind of walk off into the sunset and, uh, and uh, with those guys and, you know, my last year of the barrage was um, was awesome with Doc and and Strebel and uh, Boyle and and Tony Rush and all those guys were were awesome. And uh, that was just a great way to end my career in the pro level. No, absolutely. A very fitting and to an awesome career. And I want to get your thoughts now on the PLL and kind of what the league is doing to advance the pro game. Obviously, a lot has changed now, but um, kind of what are your thoughts on the current uh, Premier Lacrosse League? Well, I think they're doing a great job so far. You know, they're really trying to get people interested. And, uh, you know, really highlighting the players, which I think is awesome and getting mm -hmm. them out there. And I think a lot of young kids really like it uh, and the social media they're on and everything they do to get the people involved. You know, my son's a huge Atlas fan. You know, he loves going to the games and 
all that kind of stuff. And, and so I think they're doing a good job. You know, I think eventually they're going to have to get the city base sometime and get mm-hmm. the, the build that, but they're doing what they have to do right now in order to promote pro lacrosse and the best players in the world out there. And I think they're doing a really good job and doing that. And they're taking their time with it. They're not rushing to do anything. They're trying to really figure out what's the right way to go and to enhance the sport for the better, you know, so since, you know, lacrosse is really more, you know, college central mm-hmm. for the most part, but they're doing a great job raising in the pro level now and making more awareness. I think they're getting great, great numbers and people understanding who these players are for the long term. So younger kids can look up to them and go, Hey, I want to be, you know, Josh Byrne, you know, I want to go do that. I want, you know, I want to be these guys. And I think they're doing a really good job promoting it. And, and, you know, the hall of fame now adding into that, you know, that's just a, an incredible step they took to enhance the game and make people and, and honor the guys that have been, who've been doing it for so long. <laughs> sometimes the cross forgets about those guys. I think sometimes and to, to honor those pioneers, uh, the guys that put in so much in the, you know, playing club ball, starting the MLL, playing in the early days of the and the NLL, doing all that dirty work for these guys to have the, the things they have today is a great way for them to go about it. So it's really, it's really awesome. No, absolutely. And moving on from your playing career, you're a coach now with uh, Stevenson. You've been their coach since 2005. Um, you guys have gone through some magical tournament runs, and one of them, you know, ended in a 2013 D3 championship. Talk about coaching the Mustangs and uh, what it's like, you know, been co- coaching all these years. Yeah, it's been, you know, Stevenson's done so much for me and my 18 years going into my 18th year here now. Uh, so it's been real tremendous. I took a big chance coming back to them back in the day, you know, I was at the university of Maryland uh, mm-hmm. to lead the university of Maryland, a big time D one school with a great program uh, to go to a little school called Villa Julie college that mm-hmm. only had 17 guys on their team. Uh, it's, it's kind of a true miracle where we are, but it also it's a, it's a, it's a real appreciation for what Stevenson has invested in men's lacrosse to get us to where we are, to build up to where one of the best programs in the country. You know, we made 12 straight NCAA tournaments. We've had about 100 All-Americans and 150, you know, all-conference guys. And, uh, you know, that's just truly a testament to what they've been doing to support us and and the, and the guys that um, believe in us, you know, all the players mm-hmm. that we've had that believed in us to get us to where we are today is, is a truly thankful for them. And it all accumulated with that 2013 win, you know what I mean? Winning the national championship uh, in Philadelphia against RIT, against all the odds. And, uh, you know, that was awesome. And, you know, our goal is to get back there. We're currently trying to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the ride that we've had here has been really, it's truly a miracle. It shouldn't have happened. It's pretty much impossible to happen for a small, you know, pre, you know, it was what's perceived as a girls Catholic school, commuter school to what we are now is uh, is great. But I think that's, it says a lot to a lot of the coaches out there. You know, one of the big things I had when I was going to take this job, coach Seaman says, you should take this job. You should go look at it. And I go, well, I like being in D1. He's like, Paul, you can always go back. You know, don't mm-hmm. turn down something you have in hand. So I took a chance on it. And a lot of people today is like, well, that's D3. They just don't know, um, you know, what these guys go through. All our guys go through everything those D1 guys do. They put in the time, the effort, the weights, the film, the practice time. You know, and a lot of you see right now, a lot of great D3 guys are in Division One. You can mm-hmm. see uh, Jacksonville has a great guy from Tufts doing that, you know. Um, Franklin and Marshall got their best player who's starting for Villanova. You know, a lot of these guys are doing that. Ohio State has a defenseman from Lynchburg playing a ton. You know, there's a lot of D- these D3 guys now that are playing in the Division One ranks, and they're players. And I think people are really starting to understand this, the quality level of D3. And I've really become, over my time, a D3 supporter. You know, I think yeah. I just love the family aspect of it. You know, what you have to do to build a program. Not everything's giving to you. Everything's earned. And I think that's really a great part of it, that teaching your players how to earn things not be given things and that it helps them for the rest of their life. So I'm, I'm really thankful for everything Stevenson's done for me over my 18 years. 
No, absolutely. I, I'm a former D3 player myself. Didn't play much, but at the sales, <laughs> so uh, fellow Mac uh, member. I love it. All right, yeah. I love it. Yeah, so definitely D3 supporter as well. Um, and talk about this current team. You guys just came off a 17-9 win versus your sinus. Um, you know, looking to, uh, like you said, make an NCAA tournament run this year as well. Um, how's the team feel so far? What's the vibe like? Well, I think we're, we're, we're really happy to get, you know, victory number one. You know, I think and we're lucky enough to have some people back from last year. You know, Mark Powell, who we think is one of the best goalies in the country, returned uh, this year to help us. So that helps. And Matt Wilson, one of our starting defensemen, came back. But I think we're, you know, more of a team than we've ever been. You know, we're the sum of our parts. And I think we did a really good job in the offense led by Cam Leidig. We had four, I mean, five goals. And, and we're asking a lot of guys to do a lot of things. And we're really young. You know, three of our top six middies are freshmen. You know, we got a new faceoff guy who played outstanding in our first game. And so we're happy where we're heading, but, you know, we got big games coming up against Colorado College, Gettysburg, and uh, Denison, and you know, Dickinson, and Franklin, and Marshall, and Salisbury. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of time to hang our hat on uh, the first uh, week one victory. We got to get ready for what's coming at us, and we're really excited about it, and we got a lofty goals that we want to achieve, and, you know, we got to be able to get better each and every week. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up kind of our main portion, but I want to do some quick hitters with our five and five. So I'll ask you okay. five across questions. And then five off the field questions. And the first one I like to ask is what were some of your pregame routines or superstitions when you played? I always like to get a good pasta meal in me about four hours before game time. I always like to go get some baked ziti and meatballs. Uh, that's what I always did wherever I went. And uh, when I played in the professional leagues, uh, uh, just to make sure I had uh, some good nutrients in me and ready to go. I always got the baked ziti meatballs. Awesome. And number two, what has been your favorite venue to play pro lacrosse at? And that can be both indoor or outdoor. Uh, I always love playing in Philly. You know, mm -hmm. I think playing in the spectrum, you know, uh, or in the spectrum or playing in the first union center or whatever it's called now, you know, it's been great playing there. I remember playing with the crossfire and playing the, um, the wings there in front of 19 five, uh, been incredible. Mm -hmm. And I also think, um, you know, being able, uh, I know it's two, I give you only asked for one, but playing in Maple Leaf gardens in front of 18,000 mm -hmm. people in a playoff game up there was incredible. You know, so those two places were the two uh, favorite kind of places to play in my professional career. They were, those two places were awesome. Awesome. Number three, what's been your favorite team to be a part of uh, during your career? And you can pick a couple because I know it's probably hard to pick one, but. Uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, my playing career. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I think my playing career would probably be just that, um, that, uh, that barrage team I ended my career with, you know, mm -hmm. just, I know it was only six games, but the, the, but the circumstances that led into it and everything mm -hmm. that led into me ended my career there and everything is pretty special for me. And, and those guys embraced me, even though I only played six games with them really embraced me as a great way to end my career. And, uh, and, and I think, uh, secondly, they had another one of this thing, you know, that, uh, Bayhawk championship we team we had, uh, and, and, uh, was incredible, you know, with Gary mm -hmm. and, and Mike, Mikey and Americheck at attack and, mm -hmm. you know, just having all those middies and being able to, uh, finish the career getting coached by, you know, um, uh, Gary was the head coach, but having uh, Dave Huntley on the sideline, you know, who's not with us anymore was incredible. So, you know, that was just an incredible run. And uh, winning that championship up there in Boston was awesome. Great. And then number four, who's been your toughest player to face during your career? Uh, my toughest guy I ever faced is, you know, uh, you know, well, I just thought it was Mark Goers to face off. Mark Goers was a, a bear to play against. He was a big <laughs> human being. He was so good and so tough. So I always say Mark was the toughest guy I've ever played. If he played longer and in the pros and stuff, Mark, you might be talking to about Mark being in the PLL Hall of Fame and not me because, you know, Mark was that tough to go against. Awesome. And then final lacrosse one, which current pro lacrosse player do you enjoy watching right now? 
Oh, I love watching Blaze Rudin. You know, I think the guy, you know, I know he's a fellow Rochesterian, which is awesome. But, uh, you know, he just plays so hard all the time. He makes a difference in the game in so many different areas. You know, he's playing short stick indoor. He's, mm-hmm. he's playing, you know, goalie outdoor. So I, I love watching Blaze play, you know. And, and uh, you know, and I think secondly, the person I'll give you a second is that I just love watching Josh Byrne play. You know, I coached mm-hmm. him one year in the MLL when I was coaching in there. And, uh, and uh, I love watching. He's just so creative. I just love how he plays. Yeah, both chaos guys, fun to watch. And in the indoor game, you know, with Buffalo and Philly as well. well you know, uh, now is a lot like me. I like his intensity. So me and Andy are, you know, we're one in the same a little bit in that aspect. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, next qu- set of questions is off the field. So this is uh, still a sports related, but who's a player in another sport that you enjoy watching right now? Love watching Josh Allen, my Buffalo Bills, baby. Go Bills, you know, so I, I'm a huge fan, you know, so uh, go Josh. Yeah, no, I, I think the Bills is a fun team to watch. I'm a Ravens fan, so don't like when we face each other. But since they weren't in the playoffs this year, I was really hoping the Bills would get over the hump. Um, I still think they might, you know, in a couple of seasons. So um, hopefully it doesn't come at the mercy of my, me as a Ravens fan. But I know all um, about the Ravens. I hear it every day from all my guys. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, what are some hobbies or activities you enjoy doing when you're not coaching lacrosse? Well, I got two hobbies that I enjoy more than anything. You know, I love playing golf and I'm an avid golfer and uh, I love my model trains. I got one of the biggest model train sets in all of uh, Maryland or Pennsylvania. It's huge, you know, 15 different train rails going and 11, eight by four things. I love model trains and uh, put on a great show every uh, Christmas open house for all the kids to come and watch it. So I'm a huge model train guy. That's love awesome. It. Wow. Yeah, cool. Number three, what is your favorite spot to vacation? <laughs> My wife would probably, she said she, I wouldn't know because I don't go on a whole lot of vacations, but, <laughs> but, uh, so I really don't have one spot. You know, we go to Ocean City Beach, Ocean City a lot and, um, uh, down that way in Fenwick. Uh, we do that a lot, but, uh, I'm hoping to go on vacation down in, uh, South Carolina one time. You know, we love Charleston. We went down there one time. We love that area. So I hope to get back to again down there soon. Great. And then number four, what's your favorite meal? I know you touched on this maybe a little bit earlier, but, uh, what's your favorite meal? Do you prefer to dine out or cook at home? Uh, well, if you talk to my wife, I just love staying at home because I'm, I'm never at home because I'm coaching and all that all the time. But, uh, but I love meat. Uh, one of my favorite dishes that I think my wife makes is a uh, meatloaf and mashed potatoes. I love it. You know what I mean? That's, uh, that's one of my favorite meals to go to that she makes. She makes a great shepherd's pie as well. Uh, but I'm a big Italian guy, you know, so I always kind of kid my wife about, you know, meatballs. My mom makes some unbelievable meatballs. So when she makes them, I kind of always tease her a little bit and just go, well, not quite mom, but, just, <laughs> but they do a great job. My wife makes a, a great meatball. So, you know, that's kind of where I had a few meals that I'm a, a big fan of, but uh, I like food a little bit too much. I think <laughs> so, I'm a big fan. No, nothing wrong with that. And then my, fi- <laughs> my final one is, uh, since, you know, quarantine now is obviously over, but we like to ask this question because people binge and stuff, whether it's books, TV shows, or podcasts, but anything you're binging right now that you'd recommend? A big Ozark guy, right? I love oh, the Ozark. Big show. You know what I mean? A big show. I love it. So I can't wait for the next seven episodes to come out. And so you can watch that. I think that's awesome. Watch from the beginning, though. You haven't watched it. Just watch all the seasons, binge watch all that. I'm a big Ozark guy. I think it's an unbelievable show. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm waiting for those last, uh, that last part of the final season. It I also like Westworld. So I had like Westworld, another big one I binge watched during COVID. I can't wait till that comes out this summer from HBO. So I'm a big fan of that. Westworld's another good one. Yeah, those are yeah. two of my favorites. So yeah, good, good ones for sure. And then that wraps up our five and five, but I'd like to end on one final question. That's what is some advice you have for a young player looking to play lacrosse professionally one day? Never give up. You know, I think sometimes there's a lot of guys that, you know, while I'm not good enough to do this or I'm not good enough to play, I think you just got to get out there and make your own mark. You never give up. And the guys, I think the 
PLL are looking for guys that are hard-nosed guys that really work hard, that want to be good lacrosse players, right? And if you mm-hmm. do that, you're going to be pretty successful. I think, you know, people get too wrapped up in names. You know what I mean? Like this guy, look at his name. He must be really good. And they don't really look at who are the really good players in lacrosse. The really good players are, guys, are tough-nosed guys that want to be good lacrosse players and understand what it takes. Not the guys who are all getting all the stars. You know, the tough-nosed guys are people that when you look out there, you know, that look at that guy working hard. Look at him. You know, look at Earnhardt. You know, I know he gets a lot of things, but if you watch him, just look how hard he works on and off the field to be good. And I think that's what players nowadays, if you work hard and on and off the field and then follow your dream, it's going to happen. So I like to say all the time that, you know, my whole life's a miracle. You know what I mean? My, I, I shouldn't be here. You know, like my, my dad died when I was young. I, you know, I didn't even play lacrosse when I was in eighth grade. I don't know how my mom even put up with me. I don't know how I got a full scholarship to Loyola to be able to do that. I don't know how I was able to play in the pros. I got lucky and, but made the most of my opportunity. So when you get your five seconds of fame, make it worth it. All right. Cause you might not get another five seconds. And so, you know, that's what I like to say. Everything we've achieved here at Stevenson is a miracle. You know, you can't get, can't go to a, a small girl school with 17 guys. I think you're going to win a national championship, become one of the best programs in the country. So work hard. And if you believe a miracle can happen, go make it happen. No, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for joining us. Best of luck with Stevenson this upcoming season. And uh, we look forward to that induction ceremony. Thanks for having me. This was great. So we're thankful that Paul Cantabini could come join me this week on this episode. Congratulate him again for his induction in the professional cross hall of fame. Now to the NLL a little bit. Uh, we had some big news this week. Commissioner Nick Sakevich has announced that he's stepping down as commissioner. Now, a lot of people saw that as maybe a cause for concern. From what I've heard, it's really not. Um, his contract was up. And with the collective bargaining agreement coming up this summer that the, the Players Association has um, not renewed the option for next year. So we will have to have a new collective bargaining agreement this summer. Um, they thought it was made sense for Commissioner Sakevich to step down since he was planning on doing it and his contract was up um, now. That way they can work on finding his replacement. Currently, Jessica Berman, uh, the deputy commissioner, is going to fill in his place in the interim. Um, I don't know if that means, you know, she could potentially be the new commissioner. I think that'd be big for the the sport uh, if she is, or if she'll stay as deputy commissioner um, and just kind of fill that role until they find a new commissioner. But I think we have to give a lot of credit to Commissioner Sakevich. When he took over six years ago, the league only had nine teams. It was very common for these franchises to, you know, come around for a couple of years and then go away or relocate. And we have had some relocations, but the teams have increased from nine to 15 and, you know, 16 is apparently on its way as well after Las Vegas. Um, And then, you know, they've even talked about expanding as far as 20. So I think that's why I was a little surprised that he's stepping down because it seemed like, you know, him and the, the front office had a big plan to continue to expand um, but talk a little bit, Brian, on the other side, you know, that's expansion and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but what are some other things you think commissioner Sakevich did really, really well for this league? Well, you also brought up, uh, the fact that teams were very transient and would show up every once in a while, uh, and then for a couple of years and then they would go away and the wings are a really good example of the team. And I grew up, you know, going to a wings game or two, mm-hmm. the indoor game wasn't very popular where I lived. I didn't grow, grow up with it necessarily. And, um, the efforts that he made to establish like TV deals and introduce the, the sports betting into the NLL world um, and also bring outside financial interests like Steve Nash mm-hmm. and Wayne Gretzky for the, the new Las Vegas team, like all that stuff kind of like wrote me back in. I mean, having the wings back help, but that also speaks to his ability to financially expand the league to the mm-hmm. number of teams that we have now without the effort that uh, 
he didn't put up, I, I might not be sitting here talking about the NLL right now. I might not be watching like everyone else on ESPN. So uh, couldn't be more grateful because I'm having a great time growing as a more legitimate fan rather than someone who went to a one-off game every once in a while. No, I agree. And I think too, just what he was able to do, you know, you look at what the Nighthawks go to Halifax, that's a new market where they're hungry for pro sports and they don't have pro sports. And what Kurt Styers has been able to do with Halifax. I mean, they had great attendance numbers. Unfortunately, you know, that was kind of, uh, dampened a little bit because of the COVID restrictions, but now they they were welcoming fans back and stuff. And by doing that, he still gave Rochester a new franchise too, as well. And you know, brought back the wings and stuff. And you know, going to emerging markets like San Diego and Las Vegas, like markets you would never think would have indoor lacrosse. And uh, I think that's a credit to, to him and you know Joe Sai as well, who purchased those two franchises I just mentioned. But um, credit to him to kind of push the boundaries. We now have box lacrosse in Texas, you know, so in Fort Worth, and I think. He, he recognized where there's markets that are hungry for professional sports um, and saw that as an opportunity for lacrosse, not necessarily just sticking to the hotbeds. Because as we've seen, the hotbeds don't necessarily do, you know, particularly well necessarily. Baltimore had multiple teams that didn't do super well, you know, same with the D.C. area. Um, and it was really just like Philadelphia was, you know, the prime example of a, a really big hotbed for college lacrosse and, you know, youth lacrosse that, was a perfect pro market. I think that says a lot about Philly fans is, you know, as you would say, uh, whereas other markets, you know, like Boston and Baltimore, um, you know, even the upstate New York had a handful of teams. Now they get Albany, but um, you know, it was, it was tough for these markets to kind of get people interested in box cross. And I think he's been able to do that in markets that you wouldn't really expect. Um, And then you mentioned the franchise value, you know, uh, both the rush and it sounds like Las Vegas went for over 10 million uh, when they were sold. Whereas, you know, I think prior to his tenure, franchises were probably still in the six figure range in terms of valuation. Now, of course, there's inflation added into that as well. But um, I think the value of the franchises have dramatically gone up. And as you add more franchises, more, you know, other people get involved. uh, That's great for the sport. You know, I think one of the things why the hotbed regions didn't really catch on is because that's a version of the sport that isn't really taught in any of those Mm -hmm. regions. Mm -hmm. We're all taught in that like tri-state area. We're taught the field game. We go through a feeder program to a high school that's going to get us recruited. And then we go to a college to play the field game. People didn't really teach the box game. We just saw pros go into an indoor league Mm -hmm. um, or got introduced to Canadians who came down to play in an indoor league. Um, We didn't even necessarily understand that it was Canadian, not origin, but like it was like a a very Canadian heavy league. Mm -hmm. But now with all of this effort and all these TV deals and all this expansion, and uh, whether it's a hotbed area or not, with more people watching it, more people, and you see more coaches too, also emphasizing the skills of the uh, box game and the mm-hmm. prominence of the chaos, which is a, a very uh, you know, box heavy skill set team. I think people are really changing their mind about that. And I think both things are happening right around the same time. The league is going to hit some form of resonance where it's going to exponentially grow in a good mm-hmm. way because of all of these combined things and none of them would be possible if, if all, if all of what we had just mentioned hadn't happened. Absolutely. And, you know, I think their partnerships with us box law and, you know, these uh, collegiate box lacrosse leagues too, that occur, um, you know, you're seeing a lot more Americans play box in college and then at the youth level as well. So I, I think, you know, it's all interconnected and I think it's great for the sport. I think, you know, the league is in good hands and, for people that saw this news as, you know, I, I was shocked as well, but I don't think it's a cause for concern 
um, at all. You know, obviously we do have the upcoming CBA, which will have to be worked out. So, you know, definitely some negotiations are going to be going on, but I think the state of box lacrosse uh, in the NLO is, is thriving right now. It's going to continue to thrive no matter who becomes commissioner. Um, you know, hopefully it's a guy that can really take what Sakevich was able to do and build upon that. Um, but I think, yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about commissioner Sakevich and he was a great interview too, always gave us some time. So appreciate that about him as well. Um, but in terms of on the floor, this season is full speed ahead and, you know, we're about halfway through and, um, some teams are looking great. Some teams are not, uh, you know, COVID is starting to really go down a little bit, which is good. So we're seeing these teams in their true form. Um, so we'll start off with a team that's maybe not looking so hot and the Firewolves. They lost 15 to 13 to the Nighthawks last week, um, lost to the Bandits 13 to eight, and then lost to the Rock 13 to nine. So they're on a three game losing streak, not looking too great for this Firewolves team that really seemed like they were turning a corner uh, not too long ago. Kind of thoughts on this Firewolves team and their upcoming schedule, Brian? It's tough because after the Bedest trade is when they kind of their stock started rising. The mm-hmm. their offense was kind of finding a groove, and uh, they just can't seem to really you know find the momentum. I mean, aside from you know the Nighthawks, the Bandits, and the Rock are two really good opponents. So like those losses don't look really bad. But when you couple that with the Nighthawks loss, it can be kind of deflating as we get into the back half of the season where. Uh, the, the strength of schedule for a lot of these East teams is going to skyrocket and firewalls is a good example, but I'll talk about, I wanted to talk about that in more detail later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit, but yeah, upcoming, you know, they play the seals bandits, thunderbirds, and then uh, the swarm in their next four games. So, you know, no small task for any of those games. I do think they're alive to win any of those games. You know, the seals is probably going to be their toughest test going out West, but um, you know, they could win those games. It's you know, kind of an any given day uh, type of league, but um, they're going to have to probably split those games to kind of still keep their playoff hopes alive. Uh, you know, going one and three in those next four is not going to be, not going to be good for them. And they have a lot of other teams that are you know, competing for that spot as well. Um, a team that is on the up and up that actually beat the firewalls is the rock. They beat the bandits hand the bandits, their first loss last week, 12 to 10, uh, this past weekend, they beat the firewalls 13 to nine. Um, they're five and one in their last five scoring 12 or more in all five games, um so talk a little bit about this rock team what you've seen from them both on the offensive set and as i mentioned but also on the defensive side they did have some COVID issues but even in games mm-hmm. where they were back and healthy they were still struggling to put up numbers their defense was holding teams uh pretty good nick rose has been great in cage they were struggling to get 10 goals a lot of the time mm-hmm. um even even when they were you know at full strength so to speak but this streak that they're having is actually pretty fascinating on the offensive and defensive ends if you graph their scoring over the course of the season, it was pretty stagnant and pretty low, maybe a slight decline. And now it's on a steady incline. Uh, over the last five games, they've scored 12 or more. Only one of them was in, was a loss and they lost by one or two. Um, but then in the last, in the, in the uh, four most recent games, the highest uh, amount of goals they let up was 10. So they're keeping mm-hmm. a majority of teams under 10 in the most recent history of the game. So my stock in them is rising. I would love to see them go up against the Seals because I think that's going to be a really, really key matchup, uh, a preview matchup for what might happen very late in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think the thing with the Rock, you know, we always knew they're a good team. They're good in transition. They're a good, good solid defense. Um, I think when they're at full strength, they can beat anybody in this league. The issue, I think, is they rely heavily on their leading scorers, you know, in Rob Hellier, Dan Dawson, 
Tom Schreiber is playing lights out this season. And, you know, there was a few games where they were missing one or even two of those guys. And I think that's where their depth isn't the same as the bandits. It's not the same as the seals seals and bandits have a lot of depth on the offensive end. They could be missing a few guys and they're still going to put up points. Whereas the rock don't really have as much depth, but they're starting, you know, lineup can hang with anybody. So I think that's what, you know, as long as they stay healthy and they're, they're able to have, you know, all their starters, you know, playing, like I said, I think they can beat anybody and they're showing that um, playing, you know, some tough teams and hand in bands, their first loss, you know, and that's a rivalry that we love to watch. Um, and, you know, that was a t- tough game. And I don't think we take anything away from the bandits. I just think that shows that the rock again, can compete with anybody in this league. Um, you know, and the Thunderbirds are another team that are right up there that, you know, kind of gave the rock some troubles, but they handed them their first loss as well. And um, I think with the Thunderbirds also is another team that has a lot of depth. So the rock, I think you can put them in that conversation with the seals bandits and thunderbirds the problem is if they're not healthy then you know these other teams can kind of get by whereas i think the rock that's when they start to struggle a little bit but yeah i I think they're looking great right now and another team that's looking great despite some injuries you know is the vancouver warriors um since mitch jones went down the warriors are still three and oh with a 17 11 win versus panther city 13 7 win versus saskatchewan and then 11 10 win versus calgary so not the toughest opponents that they're facing but still important for them to get those wins in this West. Um, and they're putting themselves in a position to, you know, go on a run where they can make the playoffs, um, which they haven't done, I think as a Warriors team. So, um, you know, you have to go back to their stealth days before they've made the playoffs. And so I think that's, you know, a nice turnaround for this team, despite losing Mitch Jones, hopefully they can get him back for a playoff run still kind of up in the air right now, but thoughts on this Warriors team, you know, getting some wins despite, not having Mitch Jones, they didn't have Alex UK the last game, but they're still putting it together and stringing along a couple of wins here. I, I share your concerns about the strength of schedule and, uh, you know, with or without Mitch Jones, I don't like to talk about teams like the, Oh, they're missing one guy. So like they can, mm-hmm. you know, perform against other teams as a team of professional athletes, they all are going to contribute. So but Mitch Jones has clearly affected them, but I don't think that Mitch Jones alone is going to tell us whether or not Vancouver is going to end up being a playoff team. Mm -hmm. Uh, This next stretch of games is going to tell us whether or not they're going to be able to compete in a playoff scenario or not. They're playing, they're playing the Thunderbirds, the rock, the mammoth, they're playing the playoff gauntlet, the Thunderbirds, Mm -hmm. the rock, the mammoth and the seals like in a row. Mm -hmm. So essentially it's going to show whether or not they're going to be a team that's like worth contention. So uh, this is, there's still a wait and see just because of what their schedule has been for me. Yeah, I, I tend to agree as well. That's a tough schedule. And they play the Firewolves after those four games too. You know, another team that's not, you know, an easy out as well. Um, so I think they put themselves in a good position right now in the standings where, you know, if they split these next four games, you know, I think that's a win for them. Um, you know, even better if they go three and one, I don't see them, you know, winning all four of these games. Whereas if you get into one and three territory or you lose all four, you know, you're opening up the door for Saskatchewan to jump you, Um, you know, Panther city, I think we can kind of finally rule them out of playoff contention, but um, you know, Calgary's still kind of knocking on the doorstep as well. You know, I I don't think Calgary's going to be able to have enough to make a run here, but you know, they played this Warriors team tough and um, they have the talent. They're another team that, 
you know, at full strength, they can hang with some teams, but the injury bug has not been kind to them, um, you know, losing Curtis Dixon for a handful of games. And, and that's kind of where you, you see them break down. But yeah, I tend to agree. And, you know, a team we just mentioned in the rush is another team that's kind of backs against the wall. Um, they're really in must win territory now. And we are not sure if, you know, Derek Keenan, GM of the rush, uh, was going to make any moves in terms of selling, you know, before the deadline of March 12th. Um, instead, he ended up making a move for goaltender Eric Penny, who played five seasons with the Warriors, was a free agent, got picked up by the Wings this past uh, season when, uh, you know, Zach Higgins went down. He only played one game, played really, really well for them in that one game. So rush trade for him. I think it's a good move. Um, I think it's a better, you know, move for the wings who get the 23rd overall pick. So they move up a little bit, just trading their second rounder and Penny after signing him as a free agent. But I don't know if this really gives me any more confidence in the rush. I don't think shoot's been playing terrible. You know, I, I think if they had Eric Kirk, they would maybe steal a few more wins than they have been right now. But I still think there's a lot of issues with this team, you know, on offense as well. You know, the absence of Ben McIntosh, um, unfortunately, Josh Courier hasn't been able to kind of fill that void. You know, he was traded for Ben McIntosh. So that's where I don't know how I feel about this rush team. Uh, definitely an interesting trade. And I don't think it's a bad one. I just don't know if it's going to make a difference. I don't know. What are your thoughts on this rush team? I agree. I was kind of like scratching my head a little bit because I didn't really think of the rush as like a, a, a defensive squad or a goaltending squad that was on the poor end mm-hmm. of the league. Um, just looking, just looking at it, you know, at face value, uh, they have been, they've been pretty steady in letting up amount of goals. You know, they've been hovering in between seven and 13, which is, you know, generally fine. Their, their goals averaged against is, you know, 10.75, which is probably right in the middle of the league. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't really see the problem being on the, on that end. I, but on, on the other hand, their offense has clearly been struggling. Uh, in a lot of games hovering around only 10 goals where we've seen plenty of other um, teams be able to outscore, like even the riptide they're, they're, you know, scoring multiple more goals on average. Um, So if the rush want to come back into playoff contention, I don't think a goal is going to solve that problem. They either need to, you know, somehow figure out a way to improve the team chemistry or maybe implement some kind of new offensive system, what that might be. I don't know what that looks like. Uh, but they, but they definitely need to generate more offensive production instead of bringing down the other teams per game. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't think you're going to reliably be able to keep teams under 10, especially when we get to the playoffs against teams like the Bandits and the, and the Seals and, and, and the Rock when they're healthy, like you were saying. Yeah, and I think it, you know, it goes back to the Rush used to have a lot of depth and you know, they've lost some pieces. Um, but you, you need Mark Matthews, you need Robert Church to come out and – have big performances, you know, you, you need Ryan Keenan to have big performances, you know, Dan Lettner has been playing well too, but, you know, I think you're not seeing the rush, put it all together. You know, you'll have one or two of these guys have big days, but then the other ones are quiet. And, you know, I, I, st- I you know, that, that, those names I just listed, those are all great players, but, you know, we're not seeing this type of success that you have seen with the bandits where like, everyone's going, you know, I feel like it's, it's an off day for somebody on this rush team all the time. And um, that's where I think, you know, they're, they're seeing some struggles. And again, you know, I don't think it's a goaltending issue necessarily, but shoot definitely isn't one of those top tier goaltenders. So, you know, you're not getting elite goaltending day in, day and out. Um, Again, I don't think he's the problem. And I still think they start him over Penny. I think Penny gives them an option in case shoot struggling, but um, yeah, this team, 
you know, they've hung tight with a lot of teams. They haven't been blown out really other than that Firewolves loss. So, um, you know, that's kind of an anomaly at this point, but um, definitely cause for concern and they definitely need to get a win very, very soon. And they need to figure out a way to like push the issue on offense. Like when you watch the bandits, you feel like everybody knows where everybody is on the floor. Like Mm -hmm. they're, they have systems where they're generating cutters who open up skip lanes and stuff like that. And I, and um, you know, more off ball picks. And then I was watching more of the recent rush games and I I just wasn't seeing any of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I was seeing a lot of shots from the outside, which, you know, I I don't think is the formula for winning a game in the NOL. So if they can, if they can push the issue and really get to the middle of the floor, I think they're going to have a much better time. Um, but they just aren't, they just don't, something's off that it's not allowing them to have that same chemistry that we see on the bandits and, mm-hmm. and other yeah. Teams. And this is more an eye test thing, not me knowing, you know, but like, I feel like their percentage, the, the, they're not taking high percentage chances a lot of the time, which you, you see, you know, with teams that are struggling, it's the percent high percentage chances that, you know, the bandits are always getting high percentage ch- chances, you know, that they're a team that, they really get to the the middle of the field or the floor and and make things happen where, you know, you don't see that as much with the rush Um, just from the games I've watched on them, you know, and again, this is an eye test thing more than, you know, me having numbers to crunch, but um, yeah, clearly they have some issues to solve. And I think they have enough veteran leadership that they can turn it around and still make a playoff run, you know, and, and potentially jump the Warriors team for a playoff spot. But uh, right now they're definitely going to have to turn some things around. So those are our thoughts on this past weekend of NLL games. Now let's look forward to these matchups coming up. My matchup this weekend is the Firewolves with the Seals. It's the last one of the weekend. I think this is a good test for the Firewolves. Again, they've kind of been going through the gauntlet and it's not getting any easier, you know, coming up. I think this is going to be a tough game for them. And I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, how Doug Jameson plays against this high powered Seals offense. So that's my matchup to watch. Uh, What's your matchup to watch this weekend, Brian? You know, eventually I'm going to come on one of these shows and shut up about Philadelphia, but my matchup <laughs> of the week is going to be the Wings versus the Thunderbirds. They just played the Thunderbirds. The Wings just played the Thunderbirds and lost, and they're another team like the Firewolves that have been struggling recently, um, particularly on offense, which is surprising given the potency of that offense. They got mm-hmm. shut out in the second half to the Rock, um, and they didn't put up 10 against the Thunderbirds. And um, I don't remember the exact score of the, the previous matchup off the top of my head, but um, this also kind of like needs to be the beginning of a turning point for mm-hmm. the wings because them, like a couple of other teams in the, in the East, which, you know, like the firewolves that you mentioned, and also the swarm, all, all three of those teams are going through kind of the same gauntlet of teams where they're playing a lot of the top four, top five teams in the league mm-hmm. in a row. Um, so if the Wings really want to make a push for the playoffs, they have to either, you know, push through some of these top teams and also win against the teams that they're supposed to win against if they really want to make the playoffs. Because them, the, the, them, the Firewolves, and the Swarm all have to go through the Thunderbirds, each other, um, and the Rock and the Bandits multiple times, mm-hmm. which is like the strength of schedules off the charts in comparison to what we were just talking about with the Warriors. Their tail end of the season is much like the beginning portion of the season where strength of schedule is kind of in question. It might benefit them. Um, the Wings are really going to have to fight their way to get themselves in the playoffs versus these other two teams. 
And this is the point in time where they have to do it because they're half, they're more than halfway through their season. Yeah. And that's the thing. The wings don't have the advantage of kind of making up games because they played more games than a lot of other people. And the thing, you know, too, like we're talking about three teams for essentially two spots, potentially one spot, you know, it's going to be the top uh, three teams from the West and then the top four from the East. And then that final spot is a wild card spot. It could still go to a West team. You know, I still think it's likely that we get three West teams and five East teams, but there's no guarantees. So you have the Firewolves, the Wings, and the Swarm. One of these teams isn't making the playoffs and potentially two might not make the playoffs depending on how things turn out. So I still think right now the way things shake out, I I think you get three West teams and five East teams, but um, you could still see four West teams and four East teams as well, which leaves you if you if you like the Thunderbirds, Bandits, and Rock to take those top three spots. Um, it leaves one spot for the Wings, Firewolves, and Swarm, uh, you know, if, if the, the West does prove to, to get another spot. So it comes down to record for that final wildcard spot. Um, so, yeah, definitely going to be interesting, something to watch going forward. But I agree with you. I think that's going to be a good game to watch as well. Looking forward to that rematch. But uh, that's going to do it for us. Reminder, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen. Huge thanks to Paul Cantabini for coming on the show. And even bigger thanks to you as listeners or viewers for tuning in to another episode of Pro Lacrosse Talk.